0: I'm going, to do. I'm going to read Luke chapter 1 uh, beginning in verse 26. I'm going to read what is called in church history uh, the Annunciation. It is um, an announcement. It is a heavenly, divine, um, cosmic, powerful announcement from the angel Gabriel to Mary that she um, she will conceive and bear a child and the text is very clear. Uh, that she is a virgin. And um, so let me read that for us, and then we'll pray, and then we'll talk about it. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her, and he said, High. and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth and her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel departed from her the word of the Lord. If you would, would you bow with me and pray? Father, we do ask that you would take your word and you would um, do what only you can do with it. You would you would illuminate our, our minds and our hearts so that we would understand that the words that you have spoken about the arrival of your son Jesus through your angelic messenger, Gabriel. Father, not just to her, but Father, your meaning for these words 2,000 years later as we sit here in Tyler, Texas, and how you might minister this to us. You, You promised your word does not return void. And so, Father, we want to claim that promise this morning the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, so uh, I gave you some information last week about some of my favorite uh, Christian uh, or Christmas reading, and um, this morning it feels only fitting to make sure that you know um, about my second favorite Christmas movie. And um, in fact, somebody was several people after the first service were telling me, "Well, "Well, I've never seen that before." which I would say it's not too late. You, you can repent. It's still time. All right? So, but it's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It's very spiritual in nature, um, as I will, as I am about to show you. All right? So Chevy Chase, the great Chevy Chase, all right, he plays a, a guy named Clark Griswold, and Beverly D'Angelo's his wife, Ellen. And so in the movie, I mean, not the new movie, vacation movies, those are crazy, but the old one, right? So in the movie, Clark, he has these plans for, for what he calls the, um, you know, the, the, the great old-fashioned uh, Christ, family Christmas. And, and it's, it, it's all this energy. I mean, the, the, the movie um, sort of uh, details all the energy that Clark Griswold is going to spend on making this, you know, this good old-fashioned Norman Rockwell family Christmas. And so he's, they're going to have both sets of grandparents come, uh, the the um, there's going to be an, an aunt and an uncle, uh, Aunt Bethany, Uncle Louis the, and then there's and then there's the great surprise visit from uh, cousin Eddie, and uh, you know they're standing there, they're looking at the lights that at first wouldn't light, you know all the lights on the house and they wouldn't light, and then they do light, and you know he's all emotional about how awesome the moment is, and then all of a sudden Eddie's standing there, and they go through a series of, of conver- and then. Eddie asked Clark, he said, Clark, are you surprised that I'm here? To which Clark Griswold says, surprised, Eddie? If I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet, I couldn't be more surprised than I am now. Which is some classic Christmas lines right there, okay? All right. You, you're with me, right? This is on? You're All right. All right, here we go. We're coming to it. All right. So it starts out, you know, they go find the Christmas tree, they, they wander through the, uh, the snow and, and all of those things. But anyways, the whole movie, I mean, one disaster after another, it kind of culminates, The um, s- sort of the um, uh, epitome of the disaster comes at the great Christmas dinner that they're going to have. And so uh, Barbara D'Angelo, the and his wife, comes, and Clark is standing up at the head of the table, and he's got a green tie on, and she's bringing the turkey. She lays the turkey down. Her, her cousin, had, had um, Eddie's wife, had... Uh, prepared the turkey and so it's there and he's holding the carving knife and it's the scene the way it's framed it's framed after exactly Norman Rockwell's Thanksgiving Dinner portrait if you've ever seen that it's famous and it's there and it's just all to remind you that everything that they're doing everything is to create this one perfect day and you know in the midst of an imperfect year so there's the the Christmas and the, he asked, you know, uh, uh, the uh, aunt uh, Bethany because she's old may not be at another Christmas if she would say the grace, and so she doesn't hear and they're all yelling. In fact, she's so deaf. Her husband says, you know, you couldn't hear a dump truck drive through a nitroglycerin plant. Uh, that's how deaf she is. So anyway, she finally gets it, um, and then and then she goes to say grace and mistakenly begins to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, um, and then the Clark goes to cut into the turkey and he cuts into it and it's beautiful on the outside but what you find is just air and bones on the inside. She's cooked it way too long it explodes and there's nothing there and there's jello with cat food in it. And it is it is an all time classic Christmas moment. Everything falls apart. It escalates quickly. And the guests are all packed and they're going to leave early, and they're, you know, they're at the front door, and Clark meets him, and he says, where do you think you're going? Nobody's leaving. Nobody's walking out on this fun, old-fashioned family Christmas. No, 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 no. We're all in this together. This is a full-blown, 4 alarm holiday emergency here, and we're going to press on. We're going to have the half-half-happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby Dap danced with Danny Kay. So his wife says, Clark, Don't you think we ought to end this before it gets worse? And he says, Worse? How could things get any worse? Take a look around you, Ellen. We're at the threshold of hell. Well, if you haven't seen it, it's funny. But the power of the contrast lies in this sort of polished dream, this perfection that, that... the Griswold family patriarch is, is reaching towards. And yet, can't ever get there. Things don't work out the way we want them to. And That, that we live with these dreams or these sentimentalities or these Uh, you know, these things that we're drawn to. We say, oh, well, this would be perfect and this is the feeling I'm going after or that I'm chasing. And we do it in all of our lives. We're we're sentimental and not realistic about things like marriage and parenting. Christmas. And and we push on towards these dreams, trying in all of our effort and all of our energy to make them turn out just how we want them. But the reality of life, the reality of our condition is that the, the heart of humanity, your heart, has a total incapacity to make things turn out right. Or you might see it and feel it and long for it. But there is too much in the way on the inside not to mention on the outside that prevents you from ever ever able to be able to make it right we can't do it it's the story of human history it's, it's what the writer of Ecclesiastes writes and, and says listen there's nothing new under the sun it's all toil you know it's just the same world it goes around and it goes around and it goes around and there's violence and rebellion and shame and guilt and sin and it just over and over and over again that's life under the sun and listen since genesis chapter 3 when adam and eve stepped out of god's design for humanity and enslaved themselves to a world of the enemy? That has been the story. In fact, the Old Testament is a, is a God breaking in and calling a people and then communicating with this people and providing them a promise and this progressive revelation of a day to come, of a Messiah to come, of a, of a time when heaven crashes into earth and things actually do begin to change. There, there is a hope coming. morning what we see and what the history of the church has called the annunciation is that crashing in that hope that humanity's been longing for that actually that hope that you're longing for comes crashing in look at what it says and beginning again in verse 26 so it's the sixth month it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest. Elizabeth's is his wife. They are old in age. He, has a, he is in his course of duties. It's his turn to go into the temple to make the sacrifices. And he is told by the angel Gabriel in that setting that your wife, your wife of old age, your barren wife, is going to have a child. He has a very hard time believing it. The angel strikes him mute, and he does not speak until John the Baptist is born. Here, it's the sixth month of her pregnancy. The angel Gabriel, now sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. In this town Nazareth, the whole truth, if it were not for the biblical account, it would have been lost to history because it was a nothing kind of a town. It was a nowhere full of nobodies. It would have fallen out of history if not for the Bible. We find later evidence of it in about the 1600s through archaeology. So we know where it is today. But it was nothing back then. That's where the angel goes. From God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man who was named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. You know, the angel there literally is the word messenger or angel. Angels are mysterious in the Bible. The Bible only really gives us a glimpse of a picture of angels throughout the account. There are some things we can say for certain about angels, though. It means messenger. They are messengers. And specifically, angels are God's messengers. And they're ones that arrive in our world, in our midst, and they come... They have come from the place of the throne. They have come from the place of undiluted power of God. And they step into our world. It's like they come from one sphere into the other. And they bring news from this other place. They they come from the kingdom of God into the kingdoms of the world. They announce God's plan. In fact, the last time... We see Gabriel in the biblical account was about 500 or so years before this when he comes and he announces a prophetic vision from God to Daniel. Daniel's in Babylon. He's in captivity. He's reading the words of Jeremiah, the prophet. He's meditating on them. And then here comes Gabriel. In fact, the next chapter tells you Gabriel was coming and uh, he is... Uh, caught in this angelic conflict, this sort of cosmic street fight with three other demons. And then Michael, the only other angel named in the Bible, comes to his rescue. uh, Gabriel escapes and comes to Daniel to tell Daniel about the future to come. And the future to come includes a Messiah whose, he says, dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. And his kingdom, one that will never be destroyed. And here he comes 500 years later and crashes into the story to say, now's the time. This is when it's happening. And he comes to this teenage girl. Now, read a lot this week about how old marriage j- is. You know, we always say teenage girl. And the truth is, it, it, it's exactly right. And the custom of that day, a woman would be betrothed to be married which meant betrothal was this formal setting aside um, for a man and a woman. And the the betrothal, you can think of it as an engagement that lasted a year. It was formal. It was legal. You called one another, husband and wife, but you didn't consummate the marriage until a year later. But during that year, the bride price would be paid. The man would build the home. She's going to take the woman to the. So, all of these things. And that's the situation Mary's in. She's in this between time of betrothal and consummation. And the angel comes. And she's likely 13, 14, 15 years old. You know, it's interesting. Elizabeth, in the passage before, she's going to hear from Gabriel. She's going to be blessed with a miraculous situation. In fact, she said, my, the, my reproach, the, the reproach that I've had, uh, it'll be gone. He's taken away my reproach. It's something to celebrate. It's miraculous. Mary, on the other hand, well, she's going to be blessed. In fact, she'll say later, people will call me blessed. But it, as miraculous as it is, it is equally difficult. You know the assumption, in fact, Joseph... Um, had contemplated, you find in Matthew's gospel, to put her away quietly. So she to put her away publicly would have meant she would have been dragged out of the out of the city, out of Nazareth. There, either thrown off the cliff there in Nazareth, or or the men of the town would have stoned her because adultery came with the punishment of death. And that's what they would have believed. She'd have made herself impure. Her and Joseph had. Engage in things they weren't meant to engage in until consummation. I mean, it's scandalous. And and this is where the angel comes. This this girl and that... There could not be a more humble, obscure person on planet Earth in the day. It's not even... It's not even the Jews' land anymore. It belongs to Rome in a in a nowhere town, she is absolutely a nobody. Her life would have been absolutely unextraordinary. She would—it um, was the trajectory—was she would marry. It would be very humble. She'd give birth to several kids who would grow up in her home, poor. She'd probably never travel more than a few miles from her home. And one day, like all the others before her, she would die and be laid in a ground, and forgotten. Nobody from a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And on top of that, as a poor peasant girl, she was probably illiterate. And her knowledge of Scripture would have been limited to what she had memorized at her mother's knee and what she had heard in the synagogue. I want you to think about that for a minute because later, we'll look at it next week, Mary's song, the... Christmas Carol of Mary, the Magnificat, is saturated in biblical language. So she knew. She knew. Well, here's the announcement. The announcement is he comes to her. Greetings, O favored one. Uh, The way all of that is written, the way that the favor is bestowed, it is not because of anything she's done. The favor comes from God at His initiative. Um, He is coming to her and, and bringing grace to her not because she deserves it but because it was God's initiative it was God's pleasure. He chose her but not for any reason anyone could ever identify except the pleasure in the heart of God. the Lord is with you he says but she she's greatly troubled at the saying of course she would be. It's Gabriel demon fighter and he's making the announcement from the throne don't be afraid he says for you've found favor with God and then he tells her behold you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus and he'll be great and he'll be called the son of the most high the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. He's great. He'll be known as the son of the Most High. His throne will be David's throne. He's going to live forever and reign forever. As you hear these words, what's interesting is if we took the time we. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's when God crashes into the story in David's life. David has been exalted, um, uh, made, coordinated as the king of Israel. And God will come to David. And he will make a promise, a covenant. He'll do it through the prophet Nathan. Nathan will come and say, David, this is what God's promised. David... The occasion was David wanted to build a temple. He wanted to build a house for God. And Nathan, his prophet, his his confidant, his his advisor, says, well, I think you should do that. You're the king. Do whatever you want. Well, Nathan is disturbed in his sleep by God. God comes and says to Nathan, no, no, no. You wake up. You go tell David, you're not going to build me a house. I don't need a house built by human hands. But you tell David, I'm going to build him. Him. I'm going to build him a house that will endure forever. Of his seed, there will come a king that reigns forever. And all of these words that Gabriel speaks to Mary is this fulfillment of this Davidic covenant, the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. Listen, listen, David, if you think about David's life, you think, oh, well, David, he's the hero of the Old Testament powerful man. He slays giants. He's a man's man. He's also a poet, a musician. He has everything. And yet, the tragedies of David's life are as gigantic as all of the virtues. tell you just a minute about how David's life ends. In fact, one writer calls the deathbed scene of David as pathetic as his life is, titanic. You know, you read David's story and there are some high moments and you think, you know what, I know why God chose David. This is an awesome guy. And in the very next chapter, the very next breath, you see, wait a minute, David's deeply flawed. Well, the end of his life actually is this picture of, of what his life has become. It's this deathbed scene. It's the beginning of First Kings. He's feeble. He's, he's, um, he's uh, aged. He's, he's sick. He can't leave his room. He shivers with cold. And his family comes and they keep piling blankets. The servants piling blankets on him and they can't get him warm. And so what they do is they find a young woman and they... They employ her to come and she's to get in the bed with David to keep him warm. And listen, there's nothing sordid about it. David's old and weak. There's no vigor left in his life. It's a, man, it's a picture of a man wasting away at the end of his life. And not just that. It's, it's not just his physical body that's failing him. Everything around him is beginning to crumble. He's got a son, the second son now, Who's trying to usurp his kingdom while he's laying on his deathbed? And in the generation after the next, his grandson will see this united, glorious, majestic kingdom that God built through David. He will see it divided and then he will see it conquered. First by Assyria, then by Babylon. And Then now, as you open up the New Testament, by Rome. Children of Israel find themselves humiliated, carried off to foreign lands where they don't speak the language. They'll be mocked, and like Clark Griswold might say, they'll find themselves on the threshold of hell. Psalm 137 is the song they sing in Babylon. It says, "We sat down by the waters of Babylon, and there we wept." And, and, and so you think, you say, "Well, wait a minute, then, what about the promise to David? What, what about this kingdom that was never going to end? What about the king that was going to live forever and reign over us? Where's that gone? Because it wasn't Solomon. For all his wisdom, his life ended in greater tragedy than David's. And then all the sons after him. You know, it's interesting. In fact, it's, it's amazing that Israel, as a people, would have held on to these promises. For a thousand years, they continued to preserve them. For a thousand years, they continued to preserve the words of the prophet Nathan to David, from God, about this everlasting kingdom and this king that would reign forever. And you have to think, weren't you just a little embarrassed about that, Israel? Your address changed to Assyria and then to Babylon. Well, now you're home, but it's not your home anymore. It belongs to the Romans. And you've been slaves ever since. And yet, listen, this is a people. And the Old Testament opens up that have a longing, this deep longing inside for something more, something they can see, something they've been dreaming about, this promise from God. And listen, it's the same longing we all have. Whether we know it's it's grounded in the promise of God or not. But like the Israelites, like the Griswolds, there is nothing in and of ourselves we can do to make it happen. We cannot make our own destinies. We cannot fix all that's wrong. Your family Christmas might not be filled with conflicts and heartaches and bad memories and people putting on for a few days to put up with those they love so dearly, right? Whether it's Christmas or a marriage or your family or your job, you know down deep inside something is wrong with the world. And try as you may, at least up to this point, you haven't been able to fix it all. Well, Israel did hang on to those promises. They hung on to the promises for a thousand years. And here Gabriel shows up. Listen, here's the why. There's one reason and one reason only that Israel hung on to those promises. And they, they hung on to them because those promises were from God. They weren't from man. Now, I want to show you how this announcement and how the virgin birth Is God crashing in and breaking in to the world 2,000 years ago and our world this morning here at Bethel? See, what they knew is that the Lord had spoken those words. They weren't Nathan's words, they were God's words. And we also know listen, God is not dependent upon human success because anything, anything that happened independently of David, listen, it wasn't because of anything David said or anything that David had done. God made a decision. Be merciful through His people. He was going to do it through the line of David. And all of a sudden what happens is the story begins to shift. It moves away from human, um, human measure. It he, 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 uh, moves away from human initiative. It moves away from all the good you're seeking to do and all the good that I'm seeking to do. And it moves away from us being the center of the story. And we're reminded that God is the center of the story. It is not human measures. It is the initiative of God. And that is the meaning of this announcement, of this annunciation. God says, thus the Lord says. It's almost as He's saying, look, I want you to stand there and I want you to watch what I'm about to do. And so in the sixth month, The angel Gabriel sent by God to a virgin named Mary to announce that this is the time. Now, Mary's response is so fascinating. Verse 33, you know, she says, um, or or verse 34, you know, how can this be since I'm a virgin? You know, before that in verse 29, she's she's pondering, she's She's um, greatly troubled. She's trying to discern. And it's this: what Luke's doing. He's giving us a contrast between Zechariah and Mary. He's using the same kinds of words, but using them a little differently. And he's showing us a picture of two kinds of doubt. Zechariah is a man who should have known, who should have believed, but yet he doubted. He had a closed mind. He doubted because he just knew it wasn't true. Mary, though, she's the other kind of doubt. She's the kind of doubt that has... Listen, it's, a, it's the sign of an open mind. It's, it's the kind of a doubt that actually wants answers. It shows that she's the kind of person open to truth and she's willing to step out of the driver's seat of her life. And if what this man is saying, or this angel is saying is true, then she'll conclude, let it be, despite the consequences that will come. Well, What the angel is announcing the story tells us that god is going to enter the world directly in the person of his son. He is going to be begotten by the power of the holy spirit, the same power that brought forth creation with a word from nothing. And listen, I'm not naive. It's the 21st century. And I know how people feel about things like the virgin birth. Even in conservative circles. It seems to be this great embarrassment of the church for some, you know? I'll say a couple of things about it. One, whether you believe it or not, what has to be conceded is that the way Luke is telling the story, Luke believes it. Luke is telling this as truth. But secondly, whatever may be said about the virgin birth today and whatever may be communicated about it, I will tell you this. It is what the history of the church has believed and they have believed that it is central and crucial to the fulfillment of what God is doing. I'm going to argue for that. In the fourth century of the Nicene Creed, the church fathers gather in the midst of ridicule, in the midst of scholarship of the day, and what they end up confessing is, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. Fast forward through the history of the church to the the time of the Wesley brothers and in the midst of ridicule and scorn and mockery and scholarship of their day, hark the herald angels sing. Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the Incarnate Deity. I could go on and on and on and on. 2,000 years of Christian proclamation testify that we are not simply, merely talking about a human birth. We're talking about One who was born as no one else has ever been born. Born as a fully human being. Absolutely. But begotten directly from the power of of God and this is why this is important the natural processes could not have brought about a son of God into being not even with the touch of divine inspiration it is beyond the capacity parents to produce a Jesus some of you hadn't figured that out yet you're still holding your kid to that standard listen he's not he'll never be Humankind cannot bring forth Jesus. Just like it can't bring forth true and everlasting peace in the world or in your heart. Only God can do it. Only God will do it. So I don't know what your thoughts of Mary are. She was as helpless as Joseph to make any of this happen. It was a human impossibility overcome by the irresistible power of God and it was pure and sheer grace. As Israel wakes up in the first century wondering where's the everlasting kingdom going to come from? It's not going to come from us. But it is going to come from God. See, what you see in this is that God's moving God is moving. He's moving from heaven to earth. He is moving from out there to in here. He's always been in here. We just didn't know it. And the angel Gabriel comes crashing into history to announce the hope of humanity, the hope that we've been longing for. Heaven has come to earth. The Lord will give His throne to the one who will be said, He's David's son. Sit on the throne of David, and to his end, to the uh, to his kingdom, there will be no end. I'm going to build you a house, God says. And that house is Jesus, the Word made flesh, dwelt among us, entered the world, the dying world, to be God with us. A throne established forever by the only power in heaven and earth that's able to do such. That's what it means. That, despite our powerlessness, our weakness, our frailty, our rebellion, our disinterest, God moves in and takes the step toward us. You know, Ecclesiastes, as I said, announces that the world is on this on this track, the same thing over and over and over and over again. Nothing's new. Nothing moves, and yet here. something changes left to ourselves Christmas dinners end in disaster every time but we're not left to ourselves something's moved and it's not us that's moved it's God that's moved you know I'm sure Mary wondered as this powerful angelic being standing before her from the presence Oh God, you have to wonder, is this power for me or against me? You ever wonder that? I think that's why people like Christmas so much. It's sentimental. got the baby Jesus. Nothing seemingly threatening about it. It's all vulnerable. It's nostalgic. It conjures up all the good feelings we have. yet we're naive to miss the power of the event that we're considering. See, I think many people wonder if that power truly is for you, or is it the power of God against you in your life? It's easy to conclude that. You take a look in the mirror, you take a look in your life, you you read the Bible, you realize, you know what, God has a standard and I don't live up to that crying out loud, I have my own standard that I don't live up to. Surely the power of an almighty God is against me. But here's what's great. Gabriel comes and crashes in the story and announces into the middle of a teenage girl's unremarkable life that a son is to be born. On whose shoulders the government will rest. And He'll be the one who's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And because of Him, sons and daughters will be raised from the dead. Human families will be restored. The human family will be restored at the table of the Lord. And I don't know why it takes so long. And I don't know why it costs so much pain in the meantime. But what we're speaking about this morning and that we've done every morning that we gather... We are not talking about human hopes and human wishes and human sentimentality and human dreams. We are talking about God. And the Christmas is not from man. It's from God. God is with us. And He's for us. That's what the Annunciation announces. That's what the virgin birth signifies. Because this baby wasn't just to be born. miracle of all miracles, the Incarnation. But this baby who came from heaven, the eternal Son of God, who steps into history and takes on flesh, came not to be gawked at in a manger. He came to die on a cross. He came to take all your sin, all your rebellion, all your shame, all of your humanity onto Himself. Paul says that He who knew no sin, He didn't know any of it, was made to be sin so that we might become God always created us. His righteousness. You feel it. You long for it, whether you know the term or not. You'll never get there on your own. Heaven came down so that you could be rescued. You now I'll tell you, we confuse Christmas oftentimes all the sentiment that it brings and all the good feelings that it brings. We gaze at Mary and think, oh, how wonderful. Pretty little girl and a beautiful little baby. It was Augustine who said this Mary is more blessed in receiving the faith of Christ than in conceiving the flesh of Christ. Her nearness as a mother would have been of no profit to Mary had she not borne Christ in her heart after a more blessed manner than in her flesh. I think we're in danger celebrating Christmas in our flesh. Going after the sentiment and the feelings. without considering Christ born in our heart Christ in us and us in Christ is the way Paul talks about it have you by faith placed the hope and the weight of your life and your dreams and your day on a savior or are you merely going through these days chasing a feeling I don't want you to do that. God's come crashing in in the most remarkable way to save you. Like Mary, let us be those that say, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I do pray you would do what only you can do.